Amen. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, I ask this morning, Lord, that you put me behind the cross, that your words and your thoughts would be mine. And Lord, if I misspeak today, forgive me and let your message be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, verses 3 through 10, if you want to look ahead at your scripture. So there was this comparative religions conference going on, and they had all the most scholarly, smartest theologians around there, and they were having a spirited debate about what sets Christianity apart from other religions. Just a side note, I wasn't invited to the conversation. C.S. Lewis walked into the room, and he sat down, and he listened for a little while, and finally he said, what's all the argument about? Well, they turned and looked at him and said, we're debating what's unique about Christianity. And he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. He went on to say that Christianity uniquely claims God's love is free of charge, that there's no strings attached, and that no other religion claims that. The Buddhists have a, an eightfold path to enlightenment. Hindus believe in karma, that nothing comes to you not set in motion by your own actions. The Jewish code of law implies God has requirements for people to be acceptable to Him. In Islam, God is a God of judgment, not a God of love, and you live to appease Him. Only Christianity dares to proclaim God's love as completely unconditional. And we call that grace. I titled today's sermon, Grace Upon Grace. So I was asked to, to talk about grace and, and the different ways that we look at it in the Methodist Church. And so John Wesley started the Methodist movement in college. Uh, it was just a group of folks that got together after church to talk about the way that the sermon went and to talk about how that applies to their lives. And uh, they, they sought to provide education for the working class poor so that they could have better opportunities in life. They, they, they got together just for the betterment of others and for themselves. And since that time, Methodism has started lots of churches and, and schools and colleges, hospitals. Social justice and charity were always at the heart of Methodism. Methodists have been involved in the fight against poverty and war and injustice as well as ministries with the incarcerated. And John Wesley's contribution to theology and the beliefs of faith has been at the core of that, especially about grace. Wesley said, by salvation, I mean not barely deliverance from hell or going to heaven, but a present deliverance from sin, a restoration of the soul to its original purity. That really cleared things up for me, coming from not a Methodist background, the idea of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10 reads, All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Wesley also said, All the blessings which God hath bestowed upon man of his mere grace, bounty, or favor, his free, undeserved favor. That's grace, folks. Grace upon grace. Grace for Methodists is always understood as a, as a three-stage process. Provenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. But, but understand that grace is grace, and there's only one grace. We just understand it to be manifested in three different ways at different times in your life. So God's grace is unmerited love and forgiveness, and it's, and it's free. God's grace doesn't depend on our good works uh, for us to receive it. We can't earn it. There's not anything that we can do to earn God's love and God's grace. I, th I think sometimes we think God is like Santa, right? God's like Santa Claus. Uh, if we do good and we act good and we um, obey like we're supposed to, we're going to get good rewards, right? But that's not the way God is, thank God. God didn't keep a, a record of who's naughty and who's nice, except for the choir. God loves us, and there's not anything that we can do to change that. God's not going to love you any less because of the mistakes you make. God's love is God's love is God's love forever and for always. And that's hard for us to get a handle on, especially in our culture today, because we believe that, that how we are treated and how we are loved or how we receive things is based on how we act and how we do. You know, kids are taught, you know, if you, if, you, if you act right, you'll get the toy at the store like you wanted. Or if you do what you're supposed to do, you'll get to play your game for an extra 30 minutes today. Or watch television for an extra 20 minutes or whatever. We jump through hoops to receive the promised reward, and that is not how God works. There are no hoops in God's world. And following the path like that, there's no peace, there's no assurance, there's no sense of companionship with God. Rather, we're asking why we are miserable and have no peace or joy in our relationship, and we just try harder. What else can we do? Maybe I can get a little more plugged in at church, right? Maybe I can do a little more at church and, and make up some of the ground that I lost. No, it doesn't work that way. Maybe I can pray a little longer and a little louder. It's not how it works. That's not the way that it works. John Wesley was certain that salvation was not for sale. He was convinced that no one could earn a place at God's table. We can never justify ourselves. He based his on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone... Who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Everyone, not the good, not those who do great things, not some, not part, but everyone who believes in him. Throughout all of history, God has been seeking to restore the lost relationship with us, with humankind. St. Augustine reminds us that the very reason we were created 
And he says, Thou hast made for us thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. God, you made us for you, and we can't be okay until we're with you. That's what he's saying. So prevenient grace, that first grace, comes from the Latin prevenio, which means to go before. So prevenient grace is that grace that goes before. That's that grace that, that's been happening since the beginning of time, I think. There, there is no, we don't have any way of, of counting how far back it goes. But prevenient grace is the grace that's happened before we knew about it, before our existence. I, I think when, when, in Genesis when it says that, that God was present, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that prevenient grace, our Donnie's, Prevenient grace started then. May have started before that. But God has been taking care of us all of this time, wooing us into a relationship so at the point that we get here, God is already working in our lives. God already has a hold of us. Prevenient grace does two things. It convicts and it convinces. It convicts us of our sins and it convinces us of our need for grace and our need for God. And our awareness of our need for grace comes from grace itself. We know that we need grace because of the grace that God's already given us. We've already been so filled with grace by the time we have an understanding, we know that we need it. We, we have that craving, that, that, that oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Craving, desire, need. We need that grace. Biblical examples of provenient grace are found in Psalm 139. For it, was, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. And then Jeremiah 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, provenient grace was working on us before we ever had any idea, and it was already turning us toward God. Jesus promises us in 2 Corinthians, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When we are at our weakest God is working extra hard. That grace is working in us, reminding us what our need is. Prevenient grace is the work of the Holy Spirit in each of us, preventing us from moving toward disobedience. It's that thing that pulls us away, that Holy Spirit that reminds us, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. When I was in high school, I would always get that feeling. Maybe I shouldn't go with those guys. Maybe I shouldn't do this. That's that Holy Spirit. That's that prevenient grace working on us when we don't even know it. And until we finally understand the good news of the gospel and we finally say, yes, God, I get it. Yes, I am going to give in and be a part of you. I'm going to have my own relationship with you. It's not based on mom. It's not based on my Sunday school teacher. It's not based on the preacher at church. It's going to be me and you, and we say yes to it. On May 24th, 1738, John Wesley wrote, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. This is the best part. About a quarter till nine. So about 845, 
while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. So, so John Wesley had been preaching all this time. He had, he had preached in seminary. He would preached uh, to, the, to the churches. He had been preaching in the fields and in the cemeteries. You know, he, he climbed up on his dad's tombstone and preached to, to hundreds of people. Because they wouldn't let him come in the church. They were already mad at him because he, he said some things. But anyway, he was preaching. But he did all this preaching and telling and knowing about God and God's love and God's salvation and God's grace. But it wasn't until this time that he knew for himself, I have received it. My heart has been strangely warmed. And it was at that point we understand justifying grace. That point where he said yes. Yes, God. Justifying grace is that grace that makes straight the relationship through the cross. It restores us. We are made just. Justifying grace is a short-term process that signifies the change in our relationship to God. Up until this point, we've been being wooed. God's been working on us. The Holy Spirit has been leading us into a direction. But justifying grace, we're saying, yes, yes, I'm in now. I'm all in. We start working toward God. We are created by God to love. And this awareness is the first step to returning to what we were created for in the first place. We have strayed away our whole lives. Or some of us, it was early. Some people got this early on. I didn't. I was, I was 30-ish before I figured it out. Before I said yes to God. Jesus gave us a great, a great illustration and justifying grace in the parable of the prodigal son we talked about that last week remember so he leaves his father's house he leaves the provision of his dad he, he walks away he takes all of his possessions everything that he can gather up dad i want what's mine i want to take everything and he leaves and he blows it he just blows it <coughs> gives away everything that he has goes to work working for the with the pigs and he and it says it says he came to himself that's that Holy Spirit, folks. That's that Holy Spirit slapping him upside the head. It says, I came to him himself, and he realized I can do better at home with my dad. And so he heads home. I'm going to go home and deal with my disappointed father. But before he gets there, the father runs out and grabs him up and puts a ring on and says, we're going to celebrate, right? To his surprise, his father welcomed him home with great joy. And that's the way it is in heaven when a lost soul comes home. When a lost soul says, yes, I'm in. And God and the angels celebrate. You know, churches are, and I, churches do a pitiful job of this. Because you have somebody that's missed church for one Sunday or two Sundays or five Sundays or a year. And they finally come through the door. And half the people that greet them are, where have you been, sinner? You know, we mean it lightly. It's just a joke. But instead, we ought to be just saying, gosh, I'm so glad you're here today. I have missed you. Sit by me. But we don't. We, we want to question Let's not question. Let's just say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you made it today. Come sit with me. You know, we all sin and we fall short, right? And we turn from God. That's just who we are. It's humanity. 
but God initiates restoring our lost relationship with Him. Justifying grace is that stage where we're brought back in and we say, yes, God. In other denominations, justifying grace is often called conversion or born again. But conversion or born again is instantaneous and progressive. Step by step, we come into a better understanding, a greater maturity uh, of our faith and how Jesus works. It's day to day and moment by moment, but it is progressive because we continue to learn. Sanctifying grace is the work of the Holy Spirit rooting out sin and moving us from what Christ did for us to what Christ is doing in us. So it's that continued growth that we have throughout our life. We continue to grow and we continue to grow and we, we, are, um, we continue to respond to the love and to the grace given us. And sanctification differs from justification in that while God accepts us as we are, God doesn't leave us where we are. We are constantly changing and God snaps us up from the grips of sin and death and changes us and puts us in a new place. John Wesley believed that sanctification took a lifetime, that we work for that our whole life, that we move toward perfection in our whole life. But he also recognized that it could be instant for some. Take a very special person. Some people think that Mother Teresa was that kind of person. Sanctifying grace is the grace that moves us toward holiness and perfection. And we've talked about perfection. It's not the standard secular worldly idea of perfection we're all wonderful but what it does mean is that our will and God's will is perfectly in line we work toward that our whole life where we return our hearts to its original purity the heart of Christ perfection is achieved when our will and God's will are the same and we are no longer able to sin now think about that for a second we are no longer able to sin Saint Augustine believed that we are not able to not sin he didn't think it was possible but John Wesley believed that it was that our sin that our will and God's will can perfectly align and we move toward that through our lives Folks, there's only one grace. There is one grace, but we understand it in three different ways, provenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace. But the, the, the bottom line, the, the, the most important part of all this is it's free. God's grace, we don't have to work for it. We work in response to it. We do things at church. We do things in the community. We do things with our families because we are responding to the grace that God has given us. We don't have to jump through a hoop to get it. It's free. So don't take it for granted. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.